Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and though Parliament might be on recess, there's no escaping politics at the moment. This week, we're going to be talking to the top Tory commentator, Tim Montgomery, the founder of Conservative Home. He says that his own party needs a total overhaul, and so we ask him what we should be looking out for in a Boris Johnson premiership, if, that is, it can first make it through the cataclysm that is Brexit. First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's Deputy Editor Steve Bloomfield to discuss where the Tories stand today. Uh, Steve, um, you've pointed out um, not so long ago that they've stopped talking about economics, which used to be their strongest suit. And what's more, I think in your piece, looking back a month or two, you were saying this was a very bad thing. Yes, they've stopped talking about economics and they've started talking a lot more about identity. And I think that was one of the things that we were quite keen to get Tim to explore in his piece, which he did very well in the in the current issue, um, was, well, if they can get off this topic of identity and go back to thinking about the bread and butter issues, where does the Conservative Party stand? Because... Uh, it has been sort of flailing around a little bit in the wind for the past few years. You know, one of the things that you would you can say about George Osborne and David Cameron is that, you know, you might not have agreed with their long-term economic plan, but they certainly had a long-term economic plan and kept on repeating that phrase and repeating it and repeating it. Um, now, that's something that uh, the Conservatives haven't really been doing for the past uh, three years. Obviously, they've been consumed by Brexit. Um, and... I think what Tim's tried to do in this piece um, is try to work out a way forward for them, which is a bit more about uh, about policies and ideas rather than just uh, rather than just identity. Although, I mean, he is rather keen on identity, isn't he? Flag, faith and country and those kind of things he does talk about. And a lot of the new economic agenda, as he sees it, is not about boosting GDP, but boosting local economies and people's attachment to place yeah I, th- I think you're right that there is i mean i guess in politics there is no getting away from identity at the moment but i think at least what he's trying to do is is look at 
Um, he, he's not simply saying, uh, well, identity and culture is everything. Yeah, he understands that actually you need jobs and you need proper jobs that, that mean something and you need uh, proper local services that mean something. Um, and one of the interesting ideas I think that he brings out, which I rather like, is he refutes the um, the Norman Tebbit idea of uh, getting on getting on your bike to, yeah, to find yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to ask him about that. You know, and actually he talks instead about, well, no, 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 that rather than you getting on your bike that to find work, work should come to you. Um, and that's what a government should do and again you know that's a bit of a step change for the Tories because it's saying look we're not just going to leave everything to the market uh, we're not going to uh, leave everything to that we're you know we think now that we should intervene to make sure that things work for you at a local level and that's a that's a different sort of conservatism than we've seen over the past few years. Um, let's just um, take a step back um, and again the, the, the cover piece you did a while ago we had uh a rather aged-looking Boris Johnson on the front saying a British Trump question mark, and you were talking about the parallels in the kind of populist techniques that he's been using. But since he's been in number 10, it's been a lot more cheerful and a bit less angry than Trump, hasn't it? And it's not really a far-right pitch. It's not really extreme, except, of course, on the one big issue that's coming down the tracks, I'd say. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, the, the, the big difference between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump is that you know, Donald Trump is a racist and, and has a and has a history of uh, of not just saying racist things but acting in a racist manner. Um, Boris John- Johnson has dabbled in racism from time to time, um, so I think there's, there's a big difference there. His populism is more of a, as you say, more cheerful, and I think in a way he's also he's also pushing. An agenda that you, you, you could oddly say is a bit liberal. It's a sort of do anything, say anything liberalism. So he's against what he'd call the nanny state, whether that be on, um, you know, uh, sugar taxes um, or, you know, what you can eat, what you can drink, but also in terms of then what you can say. So he's, he's defended his past comments about uh, uh, about uh, women wearing burqas uh, and about black people by saying, well, look, I don't think, um, you know, one of the reasons I think people don't like politicians at the moment is because we don't say what we mean and people should be f- feel free to say what they mean. So he's got this sort of, you know, you can say what you want, you can do what you want type of uh, attitude. And he's got a kind of anything goes approach, which actually I think, despite Tim Montgomery being a big fan of Boris, is, is kind of at odds. Final question before we go over to Tim um, himself is, um, again, if we just try and take as many steps back as we can, we're used to talking about social democrats and social democracy being in crisis for a long time. Uh, What do you think about the argument that the kind of, however you do it, a big refit of conservatism is necessary? Because maybe the centre-right is in serious trouble now. The key ingredients that it used to have Atlanticism in foreign policy and free markets in economic policy don't look as clever as they did a generation ago. No, you, you you're quite right, and and I think it's not just um, those big ideas, but also when you see them in practice as well. In political terms, the centre right is struggling. So you know, you look across Europe. Yeah, you know, in France, for the first time um, in the Fifth Republic, the the centre right, the Republicans, didn't get uh, into the second round of the of the presidential 
elections. Uh, you look at uh, Italy, the centre-right has, has essentially disappeared there. Uh, even in, in Germany, the centre-right is holding on, but, but only really through the power of Angela Merkel, uh, and then often with policies that have attracted a lot of uh, left and centre-left uh, voters, rather than the traditional centre-right. So they're really struggling to work out what their what their political philosophy is since 2008 and i think that's a that's the big challenge that conservatives not just in this country um but in the whole of the western world are are still sort of struggling with okay that's a very persuasive case for why they're going to need a rethink so let's go over now and chat to tim montgomery about what sort of rethink that should be selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And so, um, Tim, you've been doing something that is not exactly the rage of fashion at the moment which is thinking about politics after brexit rather than um <laughs> through the brexit um moment and a conservative agenda for after brexit yeah and i'm really grateful tom for prospect giving me the opportunity to think a little bit more at length than is normally um possible and yes we voted for brexit but of course the wider context of brexit um is democratic insurgency throughout the Western world and beyond the the Western world, and I think you know, I'm a Eurosceptic. I'm a Brexiteer. I believe in all the Brexiteer arguments about a national sovereignty, but I'm fully aware that if there wasn't this fundamental unrest with the political economic settlement that started to erupt after the the crash a decade ago, uh, we probably wouldn't have had Brexit. This was a vote, just as the vote. Uh, for Trump, uh, the vote for change in Germany, in France. Uh, these are This is an electorate that is unhappy with what has been on offer from the political establishment. And uh, the thing that has surprised me most about 
everything that's happened since the crash um, is how little all of the political movements around the world have changed in response to democratic insurgency. And so this essay was an attempt to think about what those changes should look like. And um, of course, we've heard talk like that before. We've heard um, from David Cameron about the big society. You remember better than most. Um, Theresa May said she was going to um, rip up the old rules and do something about burning injustices. Um, the fact that you had to write this piece means you think neither of them quite pulled it off, right? No, uh, neither did. Um, I don't think Trump uh, is pulling off a new politics, although I think he's challenged the Republican Party in the States in some important um, respects. I don't think Macron, despite setting up a whole new political party, has done so. I think the weakness of the CDU and the SPD in Germany suggests that the establishment parties there haven't got it right. I think, you know, this is a global problem, is that uh, none of the well, very few of the conventional political parties anywhere have still found an adequate response to what are some of the most um, unsettling political events of our, of our uh, electoral events of our times. Now, one thing that's nice about the piece is you do get specific, and I'll come on to some of the specific areas in a minute. But first, it seems to me, as always with the Conservative Party, we need a quick word about Margaret Thatcher, because it looks to me like she's still got this kind of hold over the Tories of a type that a psychoanalyst would be quite interested in. That was a thought I had, particularly watching Esther McVeigh launch her now forgotten leadership bid with the kind of picture of Margaret Thatcher um, up there, like you might have a picture of Jesus in a church or something almost. And um, she's clearly a hero of yours too, but Mm. you say you're ready to part company from her most vocal followers now. Well, I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, Tom, but uh, we had a few days ago Caroline Lucas of the Greens saying there should be an all-female oh, yeah. cabinet. And some uh, wag on Twitter uh, drew up a picture saying perhaps it wasn't such a bad idea. It was a picture of Margaret Thatcher filling every single cabinet <laughs> position around the table. So absolutely right, Margaret Thatcher still is the blessed Margaret for, for, for lots of Tories. Look, I was a massive fan of Mrs Thatcher and still am. But I think it's interesting to know, and this is a point I make in the essay, is that even in her her memoirs, the, uh, particularly the path to power uh, second part of her memoirs, she was talking about all the things that she hadn't achieved. She was talking about a social Thatcherism. She was talking about problems that she saw in the inner cities, with a, about the decline of the family, inadequate education reform. The idea that Margaret Thatcher, if she'd been still at you know, her, the, the height of her political skills, would have carried on with the same agenda in... Um, 1999, let alone today that she begat, that she had in 1979, is for the birds. And the idea that Tories should still be clinging to what her prescription was in 1979, in times so different from 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 then. You know, we've we've had the rise of China, we've had the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've had the arrival of the of the internet, we've had. A huge decline in uh, manufacturing industry. We've had the rise of climate change, huge changes in the working class family. The whole landscape is so different. And the idea that the Conservative Party should be stuck with the Thatcherism as it was in 1979 is is crazy. If I think anyone just gives it a few seconds thought. So if we just do, as promised, get a little bit specific, you talk about how people shouldn't necessarily get on their bike, but get off their bike, a way of getting at this idea of place. What are you thinking of there? 
I think um, there is in conservatism, and this has been played out, I think, in the Brexit debate, uh, a big tension between uh, nation and free markets. And lots of people who have uh, conservatives who have been Remainers have have said that well, the single market was a massive achievement, a Margaret Thatcher, and yet the Tories are sort of retreating from that um, into uh, putting nation first. And I think uh, in that is an incredibly important uh, signal of where I, where I think conservatism does need to change is that there is something often unmeasured in GDP statistics about the value of settled, strong communities at a local level or at a national level that has been absent from our politics for a long time. I think you can see it on the European level. I grew up in Germany for a large part of my upbringing and I saw West Germans sacrifice for East Germany after the Berlin Wall fell down in a way that West Germans were not willing to sacrifice for Greece when mm. the Euro crisis struck. There is something about commonality of language, history, culture, national identity that's incredibly important in, in politics. Denmark is very interesting in this and how it models its welfare policy and why it's anxious about too much immigration because it wonders whether it will dilute that sort of social solidarity. And I think for the Conservative Party now, in a world where globalization has been so disruptive, is just whether, not that whether we should change the ultimate destination. Ultimately, you can't be Luddite, you can't resist technological or other forms of change. But perhaps we just need a little bit more grit in the system, a little bit more uh, pause to ensure that our welfare, our education and other systems ensure that vulnerable people and vulnerable communities have time to adjust to all the changes that are taking place. And that's why I think uh, uh, not just immediately assuming people have to get on their bike and change everything about their, their lifestyle and their community, um, that shouldn't be a first instinct of conservatives today. Okay, so we're walking away from Norman Tebbit, even if we're not walking away <laughs> quite from Margaret Thatcher. But some of what you were saying there could very much have been said by um, David Cameron in, in, in his big society phase. You know, do you remember he had the phrase GWB, General Wellbeing, counts more than GDP, gross domestic product. Um, and yet the big society, aside from people like you and I, is now like a largely forgotten um thing um not, not much really changed now you do get quite specifically you do have thoughts on housing policy planning policy and also policy towards businesses that you think might like give some substance to this grit mm. you're talking about say a bit about those yeah, well, i think you i think the huge advantage that boris johnson has compared to david cameron is you know the repair of the public finances Tom you and I may have slightly different view about how um, whether austerity was too austere um, but with the deficit down to the level it is uh, Boris Johnson has money to spend that makes a sort of uh, a more community-minded economic policy more feasible I would mm. I would say but um, I think even if we were still in difficult times straight to your question um, I think there is a way that you can change the tax system uh, for example, 
we tax internet companies incredibly lightly and high street companies very heavily. I shops, think in a, other words. Yeah, mm. I think there's a you know, local community-rooted shops. I think uh, we have a over-financialization of our economy where big banks, uh, still big banks, even 10 years after the crash, lots of big companies have an access and clout in Whitehall that is disproportionate to what should be the case. We've had, we've allowed companies to get bigger and bigger, more and more remote from their communities because conservatives haven't been uh, serious enough about competition policy, which should, and Adam Smith would have urged this upon conservatives, should be the first priority of conservatives. We shouldn't have allowed supermarkets, energy companies, banks to have grown as big as they have been. And would you I'm, want... I mean, at the moment, the competition framework just says low prices equals good. Stuff like Amazon uh, tends to have low prices. Google has a free price. Are you saying you need to kind of rethink the whole way competition policy works so you're working to different criteria other than just low prices? Well, you know, at a minimum, uh, if you look at this on a global level, um, you may not want to break up Facebook, but why would you allow Facebook to have bought WhatsApp, you know, to become mm. even bigger? Um, why would you allow Amazon to essentially subsidize some lines from other lines that they, they sell, which could weaken, uh, you know, means that they're taking a loss in the short run in order to force competition out of business in the, in, the, in, the, in the long run. And I think we haven't asked intelligent enough questions about the Amazon model of how all these algorithms work on the website. I'm not a fan of Elizabeth Warren in every respect, but I think her candidacy for the Democrats is certainly the most interesting one of all of them at the moment. Her, her instinct on uh, breaking up big remote business that feels no loyalty to community or state or even nation even the united states is something that uh, people like tucker carlson you know one of the more right-wing pundits on fox news has been in celebrating this agenda is throwing up some potentially surprising but quite fertile new alliances do you think it's different though for the us brexit britain going it alone a smaller market um, doesn't host any of these internet giants. Um, I think there's still things we could do, really. I certainly think there are things that we can do in tax policy. Um, they are potentially difficult because I'm not sure that um, America will approve of us taxing American companies, which effectively what you are doing by taxing tech companies in, in a different way. But I don't see why there shouldn't be uh, some form of taxation um, on, for example, uh, Amazon delivery, uh, f forms of delivery, to make up for the fact that these multinational companies aren't really paying their fair share of tax in other, in other ways. And um, I think uh, in a, a, not a bias, but a rebalancing towards the small local business with roots in, in the community, uh, I think that's fundamentally conservative. It may not be libertarian, but there is a difference between conservatism and libertarianism. And perhaps at the heart of my essay is trying to rediscover conservatism, not libertarianism. And where do you think the new prime minister you've been a big supporter of, a strong supporter of, is on all of this? Because certainly as mayor of London, 
He was saying, I'm going to stick up for banks when no one else is. <laughs> he was saying George Osborne, if anything, hadn't gone far enough in cutting the top rate of tax at a point where you were quite uneasy, I think, that that was seen as the priority rather than cuts in tax for the low paid. And even running into this leadership election, he's put the emphasis on the on the top rate of uh, tax and uh, rather than the lower end. Are you, are you like still optimistic that he's the man to deliver on this sort of vision? I am. And um, I think uh, he's changed somewhat, I think, because of Brexit. I think there's uh, I think he's been on a little bit of a journey because of that uh, sense of globalization has created a lot of casualties and being able to bring certain policies home, like government procurement policies, like competition policies, like trade policies. Uh, I think he's got more armory now. as the first, hopefully, post-Brexit Prime Minister he'll be from the 31st of October. But you also look back to his time as London Mayor, Tom, I don't think it's complete discontinuity. He championed the living wage before George Osborne did. I think he was worried about uh, pay at the, the bottom of the scale and the uh, you know the community organising groups that were behind the living wage, I think, would, it, would acknowledge that. Look at his commitment to... Uh, Olympic, the investment in the Olympics or Crossrail. He really did believe in big government projects to keep the city functioning. And I think he now wants to take that same message uh, to the rest of the country. And you know, one of his first announcements as Prime Minister was to commit to the HS3 mm. link between Leeds and Manchester, which I think is more important actually to the future of the North than than HS2. And we don't want, you know, one of the concerns I have about HS2 is it's just sucking things further towards London potentially rather than evening out the economy. But joining up the North seems fundamentally good for uh, the regional balance. You talk in the piece about what you call the great switcheroo of uh, the idea that, like, in the future. I had just come back from Australia. That was probably (laughs) the reason. (laughs) But the idea that. Um, as was, uh, I think you were saying, was true in Australia, arguably true in parts of the US now, that poorer voters might be tending to go right and more educated voters, and a lot of them richer, of course, going left. I mean, could you really imagine in 10 years' time that like a Conservative voter might on average be poorer than a Labour voter? Well, that's the trend. You, we don't know where it's going to end up, and no uh, movement in politics is necessarily... Uh, permanent but this is a global phenomenon you look now at the uh you know clinton really won wealthy america um in the last presidential election it was it was trump's message resonating in michigan and pennsylvania and uh places like wisconsin um in australia uh scott morrison won because of queensland votes you know poorer working class uh, mining votes in particular while he lost the a lot of voters in upscale Sydney so whether it's going to completely uh, rebalance I don't know but one thing that you know there's lots of things to be pessimistic about in politics at the moment but one thing about this switcheroo that I think we should all celebrate in some way is that if we end up with more competition amongst the political parties for lower income voters more competition between politicians competing to address what they're worried about that can only be a good thing i think if you're a a one nation labor supporter or a one nation conservative supporter so um throughout this there's a kind of chipper um 
tone. Um, but times could be about to get quite dark, some people think. And so level-headed uh, commentators, whether it's on the centre-left, like Martin Kettle, or the centre-right, like Ferdinand Mount, have described the Johnson government as being a right-wing coup. To point out the majority has now fallen to one, and yet it's carried out this kind of beyond the night of the long knives taking no account of faction it's looking mm. like a kind of narrow sect in terms of the commons and deeply unconservative talk some would say of suspending parliament how do you keep sanguine with all this kind of fear in the air well look we've largely and it's been refreshing talk not so much about brexit because uh, in this podcast because uh there is going to be a world i hope post brexit not too too far away but there is you can't ignore brexit uh, this is a government that has only come into existence because the last prime minister theresa may completely failed uh, to resolve the brexit question um and without resolving that question there is no conservative party i think the conservative party will be dead if it does not deliver brexit um, and this agenda will be pointless because the Conservative Party won't be around to deliver it. I think uh, all the people that are complaining about uh, the possibility of no deal who didn't support Theresa May's deal, they, they have a, a lot of questions to ask themselves. Um, we all need to compromise in politics, and it was the failure of enough people to compromise over that withdrawal agreement that has led us to but this position. Do, do you mean the kind of um, ultras on the conservative side? Do you really mean Labour people? I mean, it, I mean both sides, really. Both of the main political parties stood on manifestos at the last election saying that they would honour the referendum result and would implement Brexit. Now, I wasn't particularly happy with the compromise withdrawal agreement that Theresa May came up with because it was a compromise it mm. wasn't everything um that i wanted i don't really see what was in the withdrawal agreement that most moderate labor mps who meant what they said about respecting the referendum result really objected to in it they were playing politics now and so were the spart so-called spartans on the on the right the the no compromise tory eurosceptics i blame them both sets of people equally but um, we are in this position because parliamentarians wouldn't compromise. And we just had a, a poll recently in The Telegraph which said that 88%, I think, of those polls said they didn't trust politicians to implement the Brexit result. You know, 10, 50, 10 years after the crash, similar amount of time after the expenses crisis, we still have this trust problem in politics and I don't think it will begin to be resolved until the Brexit question is resolved so I make no apology for completely backing what Boris, is, mm. Boris Johnson is doing on Brexit but I hope beyond that incredibly divisive question uh, the stuff that we have been talking about today Tom has the possibility of, of some form of reunification because the big problem I think with the May premiership uh, one of the big problems was that it only became about Brexit. If she had made good on her tackling the injustices of our time mm. speech and Downing Street, at least people would have been able to say, at least on the Conservative side, who are perhaps more Remainy, I don't agree with the Brexit agenda, but at least something else is going on here to heal the nation 
that I can support. It was the absence of that that I think elevated Brexit and elevated the divisiveness of Brexit to a whole new unsatisfactory level. But finally, if we've got what looks increasingly likely to be a no-deal Brexit, we know that that will create a big constitutional, political kind of crisis. But might it not also, I mean, I don't know any better than you in, in terms of exactly how this would all play out, but might it not also create a crisis in the some areas of day-to-day life, whether it's smooth supply of drugs, steady supply of food, the cost of living, which will then feed back in a different way to that trust question about can politics make our lives better? Yeah, I think... Um I sort of see no deal slightly as sort of like a game of Russian roulette. Um, I think five times out of six, we'll probably be okay as a country. There'll be, uh, it'll be an awkward transition and it'll be a bumpy transition, but nothing terrible will happen. But a little bit like the fuel protest strikes of 2000, which we're both old enough to have you know, lived through. We, you know, the nation came very close during that period to some very serious shortages that could have killed literally kill people and that is the, is the danger with with no deal you know we don't quite know what um the the, the we need you know, the sort of donald rumsfeld talk what are the unknown unknowns mm. that, that that's what worries me about no deal and it's why i reluctantly kept backing theresa may's compromise agreement because i wanted to avoid this but um and an issue where you and i might uh, <laughs> disagree ultimately tom if the choice is and I think it is now between no deal and no Brexit. I think the cost to our democracy and trust in politicians, as much as anything, is so high. I think we just have to now deliver Brexit. And if Europe doesn't come to the negotiating table at the G7 summit, Biarritz at the end of the is it Biarritz at the end of the end of the month, um, then uh, I'm afraid probably no deal is going to be the um, be the outcome. Tim Montgomery, thanks very much indeed. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, and that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed the chit-chat with Tim, then do look up his full essay, which is available on the Prospect website, and also in the summer issue of the magazine, which is still on newsstands. Thanks very much for listening to our interview with him and thanks also to Steve Bloomfield for joining us earlier in the podcast. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer and if you've enjoyed the Prospect podcast then please do leave us a rating or review online. We'll see you next week. Thanks very much.
Bye-bye.